Welcome to another episode of Seed Pod, an audio reflection of the communities of Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows. I'm your co-host, Christian Cowley. I'm joined today by my co-host, Jack Emberley. We're pleased to acknowledge that we are broadcasting to you from the traditional lands and unceded territories of the Catesy First Nation and the Kwantlen First Nation, the stewards of this land from time immemorial. The work of reconciliation lies before all Canadians, a journey we have only begun. And now, it's my pleasure to bring you Part 6 of the Hundred Year War on Salmon. Jack, we've called this new segment of the Hundred Year War on Alouette Salmon, Licensed to Kill, Entrainment Finally Rears Its Ugly Head. That's really strong wording. Can you uh, bring us up to date on uh, where we've been so far in the series? Yes. According to historical documents, it was estimated that as many as 65,000 or more salmonids, spanning all seven species, populated Alouette Lake and the upper watershed. They were basic to the diet and culture of First Nations and supported sports and commercial fisheries as well. The dam in 1926 and the water diversion tunnel a couple of years earlier rendered those fish extinct. Both projects were eventually approved by government. For decades since then, low water flow from the dam negatively impacted the salmon that spawn and rear in the river. Governments, or the DFO, the agency responsible for fish and habitat, did not redress this problem. The motivation to do so had to come from a ground roots movement. Individuals, notably Jeff Clayton in the early 1960s, then more and more stakeholders at the ground level community effort, began an uphill battle with BC Hydro for more water for fish without any help from the DFO. Various studies and tests proved salmon could return to productivity in the lake notably sockeye. Hurdle number one in front of that objective is the absence of a fish ladder over the dam. ARMS, established in 1994, has been advocating for a ladder, but BC Hydro to date has not agreed to fund one. Instead, it mandated more tests to prove that the quote-unquote kokanee in the lake were actually sockeye, and that a significant number of these sockeye would actually return up the river. They are sockeye, the lab tests have proven it. Alouette River sockeye born and bred have returned. In 2020, 85 sockeye returned, headed for their lake. They kept going until they reached the dam where they would die. So there was no way to get up. So most were trapped below the dam and trucked over to spawn in the lake. Experts say the return is significant considering the hazards out-migrating smolts face en route to the ocean. What is the prime hazard? It's a water diversion tunnel leading to electric turbines in Stave and Hayward Lakes. Yet thousands of sockeye could be repatriated with a ladder over the dam. And it would make sense if there were an end to smolt entrainment down the tunnel. But this has remained until recently a topic that BC Hydro was not willing to discuss with salmon advocates and stewards. Why not? One reason could be that they knew 
or suspected entrainment of smolts occurs year-round at the north end of the lake through the water diversion tunnel, the gates of hell. This they were informed of by a May 2009 study, BC Hydro Commission. The report by biologist Maggie Squires concluded that up to 25% of smolts followed the powerful current through the tunnel to turbines on the Stave and Hayward. She also concluded essential fish food nutrients were also entrained. In this session, License to Kill, Entrainment Rears Its Ugly Head, we'll retrace this key issue extensively with local salmon historian Jeff Clayton. He has fought for wild Alouette salmon since the 1960s. So let's rejoin Jeff Clayton now. Yeah, so you've got uh, now you've got a river inflow agreement that you can that you can live with. But all of this time, it's been decades. You've had several meetings with BC Hydro, with DFO, and the elephant in the room is entrainment. But that has not been discussed. That's been off the discussion floor for a long, long time. When does it finally surface? Well, uh, Jack, I you know I I, I wouldn't entrainment is kind of a separate subject uh, with different timelines. So if we step out into entrainment, it's it's going to be a subset. Yeah, okay. So uh, Jeff, I, I, I thought that um, I thought that at this meeting you actually brought brought that subject up. No. Okay, can, let's go back then to um, let's go back then to 1995. Uh, you're, at that time you're, you're thinking 1995, you're thinking that there's a problem with entrainment, but it's not it's not foremost in your in your thoughts, and then you meet a sports fisherman who tells you who tells you something very interesting. What happened at that time? Entrainment. Yes, in 1995, there was an issue with mainland sand and gravel wanted to develop a gravel mine in the upper pit, and it would have been a disastrous for the environment up there. And so, Katie, um, you know, talked to us, and they talked to other people as to how they could address this, and it was felt that if we came together uh, as a group, as a, as a collective group, that maybe we could do something here. And I went to that meeting and I met a guy there by the name of Ken Christian. And he was a sport, a sport fisherman who had a little business guiding. And as we talked, uh, sidebar discussion there, we talked about uh, the Alouette and the stave. And he said, if you really want to get in some good dolly fishing, he said, spring of the year, April, May, he said, I'll, I, I can take you up or you can go yourself. Just go off the old Elowitz station where the water flows out into the stave. Take a Stengzilda. You know, it, it's about four inches long and it's silver. And, you know, it, it, it looks like a, 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 a little smolt, herring smolt. And he said, and, and lower it down about 30 feet and jig it up and down. And he said, boy, he says, so big dollies are just hanging out there. He said, there must be something coming through from the Elowitz that's a food source. So I didn't, I wasn't able to go up in 1995, but I went up in 1996 in the spring of the year. And I went uh, with my boat and I went right off that station and I could see, um, you know, a bit of a, a, a bloom. There was some, some plankton coming through, a change in the color. And, and then I saw, to my amazement, schools of peamouth chub uh, swirling around and looking some more down below those, I could see big northern pike minnows, um, some of them up to 20 inches. And definitely, definitely, there was a food source there. 
And so I looked some more, and, I, and, and you know, to me, it, it looked like there was bits of shiny fish in the water. And then the light bulb went on, and I thought, oh, my God, there these are coming through from the Alouette. These are these are fish being entrained in that tunnel. And of course, who would um, who would not uh, realize that with the um, the volume of water that was being diverted out of the Alouette? I mean, there was considerable currents and a and a horrendous volume coming through there. Ninety percent, ninety to ninety five percent of the whole Alouette watershed, uh, upper watershed is diverted through that tunnel. So that's when I be first became aware that there was an entrainment issue. Now, when we step in to meeting with BC Hydro to develop what eventually became a water use plan, it started as a, as a stakeholder committee meeting, 15 meetings, February 1996 to August. When we first started into that, it was an, a desperate attempt to get more water below the dam into the river. And what BC Hydro said, you know, we're prepared to look at that, but we're not a pair, prepared to address any fishery interests above the dam. So, you know, uh, we were single focused on that below the dam and been directed uh, that they wouldn't give us the latitude to, to go anywhere uh, elsewhere anyway. So, um, Entrainment didn't come up. Not to say I didn't know about it by then, but it just didn't come up. Then, because of the success of the Alouette Water Use Plan, BC government in 1997 said, you know, this is a resolution dispute mechanism that was used there with a memorandum of agreement, you know, is amazing. You know, we should suggest to BC Hydro that, that they look at this because they're definitely affecting the watersheds all over the province. So then the government, the minister in charge uh, of B the BC Hydro and others came together and they sent a document to BC Hydro that they had to do water use planning on all of their watersheds uh, they had license to uh, in the province. And so we had uh, we had started a huge process, which eventually, just in the early years of this, cost BC Hydro $50 million. So we certainly set something in motion there. And then I was notified that the stave was starting into uh, what we had called a stakeholder uh, committee process to develop a water use plan. Uh, they were calling it consultative committee because the Kwantlen didn't like the concept that they were being called stakeholders. So the name was changed, same process. And I went forward and I said in a roundtable uh, introduction, I'm, I'm here representing the Alouette. And I was told by BC Hydro's chief spokesperson, I couldn't rightfully be seated there. I could listen, but I couldn't speak. And because this was a state watershed process and it, it, would, it would conflict it. And I said... <laughs> It wouldn't conflict it at all. As a matter of fact, it, it would be an absolute contradiction in logic if you try to stop me from being here because one-sixth of the water that's flowing through the stave and Ruskin turbines is diverted out of the Alouette system. So if, if, if you think you're not having an effect on any decision made here on the Alouette, you know, you're dreaming. And BC Hydro was somewhat embarrassed and but an hour after that we had a break a coffee break and i was outside and i phoned chief dan bailey and uh, i said look 
BC Hyder is taking the position that, uh, you know, I can't speak on behalf of the Alouette because they're doing a state process. But I said, you know, hopefully, Diane, you understand that, you know, in any drought seasons, in any in any issues where the stave has to modify their flows, they might very well use the Alouette to make up for them. And it would impact your watershed and your rights. And you should have a spokesperson here. And she said, Jeff, we're just too stretched. Would you take on that position of speaking on behalf of the uh, of the Casey? And I said, I certainly would. Uh, we went back in after the uh, coffee break. And I said, well, you know, after due deliberation of what I've been told, you know, I phoned and talked to Casey and I'm not only representing arms now, I'm representing Casey too. So I think you better reconsider here. And we had the meeting. It went on for a while. I certainly spoke out if and when necessary. And then uh, the next meeting, uh, when it convened, I was told that I had the appropriate uh, seat at the table and that they understood what our position was. Later on in these meetings, as they proceeded, they didn't conclude with uh, a memorandum of understanding till 1999, but the bulk of the meetings went through in 1998. And during those meetings, I said one of the one of the huge issues here, um, you know, that I'd like to speak to, and that is uh, in '96, I find what I consider to be very harmful entrainment going on. I I, I saw it with my own eyes, uh, and I want you to do an entrainment study to find out what is coming through from the Alouette, that is numbers of fish and what impacts it's having. Not only that, but on the food source too, and that it, it was certainly written up and. There was no contradiction uh, to the fact that it would be valuable information to have, and it was a it was in the minutes, and I've confirmed this with Lee Lee Failing, principal of Compass Resources, who was the uh, the chair of those meetings. But um, as it turns out, they never did that entrainment study, and BC Hydro is yet to produce that record, and it's 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 an issue. But then I did further research. And when they rebuilt Stave Falls Powerhouse and Switchyard and put in that new installation, which increased its power from 51 megawatts to 90 megawatts, there was certain stipulations in what's called uh, an energy project certificate that they had to get from the BC government. And there was some 18 stipulations of what they had to do. And one of them was to do an entrainment study. <laughs> And, and 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 I am shocked that they were to find out in later years that they were asked to do an entrainment study on this stage and never did that either. So technically, right now, as we sit and speak, they're in contravention of that of that project energy certificate that was required in order to even start construction on the state powerhouse. So this discussion of en- of entrainment now, but nobody's following up with a, with a study because it is the um, it's hydro's dirty little secret. In the meantime, there's uh, efforts to uh, to bring uh, salmon to restore salmon t- uh, to the upper Alouette to the lake. Tell us about what that effort is. Yeah, can I can I uh, recorrect you there? You said. Um is Hydra's dirty little secret and there's no effort being made. You know, there's so many subsets to this, but there was a committee formed, you know, after the fish the sockeye started to return and it eventually became called the Alouette River 
Sockeye Re-Adramization Project slash Committee. And then it was renamed after that. But the concept was to, for all the agencies and affected people to come together and meet and try and study the reintroduction of fish above the dam. Now, in we that's that uh, eventually uh, started in 2007, but really got going in 2008. And in 2020, they finally came to the conclusion, all these august bodies of government, that yes, entrainment might be an issue and they should be studying it. And now they have concluded that it will be studied. So it would be incorrect to say it's their, their dirty little secret. They're not doing anything about it. They are now after 11 years of pounding on the door. Okay, so um, let, let's let's go back a little bit to uh, to 2005. I think because I, I believe that you've suggested that what happened in 2005 with the release of coho smolts in, in the lake uh, led to the conclusion or the realization that kokanee in the lake were actually sockeye, that they out-migrated and came back. Can you tell us, can you take us through what uh, what you did, the experiment that you did in 2005, and then what the results was in 2000, were in 2007 when those fish came back? Sure. I got, I, I got to get some clarification going here. Now, in 2003 and four, as you know, there was a Benjafield report saying that entrainment would nullify any efforts to get salmon above the dam. Then LGL comes along, another research firm, and says eh, that there is a possibility that we could establish a means of getting these, they were calling them kokanee, these kokanee out, and, and there was a possibility to see if we could start a run. but. First, we had to find some, find a means of getting them out. So then 2004, we started to discuss if BC Hydro would entertain the fact of opening the dam control gate so that we could get a surface release of water out of the reservoir instead of through the low-level outlet pipe. And therefore, if, uh, if BC Hydro would agree to this, there might be a way of seeing, you know, some fish leaving the, the reservoir. It was it was a really cloudy area there in terms of the science of what we were trying to do, but we were certainly hammering away on them. And then in 2005, we got an agreement from DFO primarily and that we could use smolts, coho smolts from the Corrections Elko Hatchery, which had, had uh, been changed now was the Elko Community Hatchery with correction staff, and they came forward with the fact that we could get 5,000 coho smolts. They would be marked in a special ways at different colors that would show up under UV lighting, and we would take them above the dam. There would be some of them released just in the dam forebay, and then uh, some released, say, one, two, and three kilometers out to the mouth of Gold Creek. The concept of that being is, would any of those released out at Gold Creek even come this way or maybe go the other way up towards the tunnel or what would happen to them? And two, would they survive the small amount of water that was being released 
spread out across the spillway meant they only had about one or two inches of water under their belly between that and the concrete, and then go over an 11 foot, 11 meter uh, uh, drop into a plunge pool, would they survive it? So an underwater camera was set up, uh, the fish were released under the different plots and this was in the spring of the year, smoke migration period, and a rotary screw trap was set up at uh, Mud Creek, 1.5 kilometers below the dam, and it had a capture box in it. So the next, uh, after the release, the next morning, we went out, pulled up the capture box lid, and looked in there to our amazement. There was not only some coho, but there was these uh, little silver devils. They were, uh, we call them coconut, we call them saucony because we didn't know what they were, either sockeye or coconut. We call them saucony. We're swimming around in there. There was quite a number of them. We got extremely excited. But the, these experienced biologists were looking in there and saying, oh, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> as soon as they get down and hit salt water, you know, their, uh, their swim bladders won't adjust to the difference in density and, uh, their biological organs are not set up for the brackish water that they're going to hit and it will kill them. Uh, so, but not everybody agreed. So they were, there were about 20 or 30 of them taken down to our hatchery. And there was somebody doing a study. Um, a doctor was doing a study on, on where uh, Fraser River smolts were going in terms of out the Juan de Fuca or up towards uh, Campbell River and Seymour Narrows. So he was inserting some tracking tags in them electronic tracking tanks. And when he heard of what we had, he said, hey, save some of them. I'll come over and put some tracking tags on them. So he did. And uh, 16 hours later to 20 hours later, good Lord, one clicked in under the uh, the Portman Bridge. And then a few clicked in in the Juan de Fuca and a few clicked in up there at Campbell River. So we laughed and said, so much for your theories that they wouldn't adjust to salt water. He said, we have some very adaptable uh, fish here that I we think are going back to their genetic ancestry. These are sockeye. God, we were excited. But, you know, we were like, that was only half the experiment, though. So, you know, then 2006 rolled on, uh, 2007. Well, of course, uh, because they are two years in fresh, uh, two years in salt, two years later, bang, 2007, I I get a call uh, that somebody had seen um, sockeye going past the Elko hatchery. So holy smoke! I I go flying up there to the base of the dam uh, to see if I can see any, was any in the in the pool up there. And I see about uh, six of their carcasses on the rocks at the base of the dam, just just adjacent to the low level outlet flows, which kind of come out in a kind of a low. A waterfall as it comes out the end of the pipe, and I realized to my horror that they saw it as a as a, a waterfall that they had to jump in order to get back up into that lake. And I phoned BC Hydro and I said, "God, I said, you know that experiment in two thousand and five. Well, the sockeye they have come back as sockeye, and you people aren't prepared and bashing their heads on the rocks here, so." They came up, their answer was, they came up and they put a chain link curved backstop just above the low level outlet. So when they jumped to try and get over the waterfall, they hit the chain link and bounced back into the water again. In other words, just to uh, to keep doing that until they died in the water. It looked better than dying on the rocks, I guess, because they were as stunned as we were. And 
I said, look, you people get a means of getting these sockeye above the dam because they'll be coming back again. And we've got to be prepared. And I wasn't getting any full agreement from BC Hydro at that point. So then I phoned CBC and I was able to get that, uh, that uh, fabulous um, commentator, Ben Metcalf, come out. Uh, he was the fellow that went north to Alaska when they formed Greenpeace to blockade the, the nuclear experimentation going on in the Aleutians. And he, he came out with, with a camera crew and we w- stood at the uh, near the low-level outlet and I told him the story again. And uh, he went right down, waded out in the water and the video was taken, came on the six o'clock news where we said, you know, this is this is the issue. These fish have voted to return to their natal uh, watershed, and this is what they're up against, BC Hydro and this damn dam. So uh, I'm going to click off here. Uh, maybe I've run on too long, but there you go, Jack. No, that's perfect. I, I wanted you to do that, and now I want you to tell us uh, that... Uh, what, uh, how, how this led to the trap and transport program that's operating from that from 2007, I think, until this day? Well, yeah, this is, this is interesting because, uh, all right, so we were in 2007. So BC Hydro had formed what they call the Bridge Coastal Fish and Wildlife Compensation Program. This was another, I got to jump back and forth here, because in 96, at those run-up to what became a water use plan, I said time again on behalf of the public in arms at those meetings that I see the peace uh, dams have gone in, and I see a a very lucrative compensation program set up. I see the Columbia was built with the Columbia Trust and a a huge fund set up to address those, those issues from the dam. They would never have been approved without those environmental subsets uh, being part and parcel to the license. But I said, we've, we've got, we've got dams on the BC hydro system that they inherited from the BC electric going back, you know, to the, to the, beginning of the 20th century. And, and that was a frontier era where uh, fish, uh, unfortunately, were considered expendable. And the dams were built without a fish ladder or, or no provision for flows below the dam. And clearly, clearly, there has to be a fund set up to address not just the LOF, but to address all these acronistic old horror shows that were built in those days. And so then uh, all of a sudden in about 1999, BC Hydro notified arms that, um, and the, the district of Maple Ridge that they were, wanted to hold a public meeting and they did in the Albion Community Hall. And Carol Lamont came forward on behalf of BC Hydro and said, we want to start a fund to address um, the old dams uh, in British Columbia. And it would be one where it would be run by the public. BC Hydro would be a member of that board and would fund. And we'd put up a, you know, a, a small fund, but uh, it would be a, the public could apply on what they considered to be the, the habitat issues that they wanted to address, both fish and wildlife and so on and so forth. So that became the BC Hydro's um, Fish and Wildlife Compensation Program, as I've said. And so we applied. And you're going to have to help me, Jack. Where should that lead from here? 
Well, okay, so that was um, that was what funded or the trailer. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So, tell us about the truck and transport program, and what condition, why it was set up, and what conditions Hydro expected to prove that um, sockeye were actually something you could restore to Elwood Lake. Okay. All right. Uh, so we applied onto that Bridge Coastal uh, funding process, and and they paid for uh, a trailer to be constructed, a uh, transport trailer, big tank, oxygenation uh, cell on it. And then they paid for a DFO to bring in their engineering staff, and uh, a whole new trap was built on the Alouette River and a deflecting fence that would divert the turning sockeye over to the trap. And that got that process up. Uh, when the sockeye returned, they were measured, weighed, um, scale samples taken, scales sent to research labs in Nanaimo. There was genom- genomic investigations to see that there were sockeye um, returning and not some strays from other watersheds. It was proven that they were and uh, this committee, no, it was being run and was renamed a little bit in 2008. And because it had all the, um, all the various agencies, including KC and, and ARMS, sitting at the table, we had a list of requirements that I don't know who, I guess it was BC Hydra must have drafted this up. But it was a seven-stage st- uh, program that we would have to go through to prove that a ladder was necessary because we had this truck and trap in the interim that would get sockeye above the dam. And, and somehow we'd been maneuvered to only be talking sockeye now. One of the reasons for that is sockeye require, it was determined that they were, these were lake spawning sockeye. They required a lake, therefore, to spawn in. So BC Hyder was taking the position that the, the river could address the needs of all the other salmon returning, but uh, it was unique that the yellow, the sockeye, would require this lake. And so the program was addressed directly to them. And each year we would apply for some aspect of gaining more knowledge as to what the requirements would be. And unfortunately, I would raise, uh, you know, entrainment is one of the issues. DFO and MOE didn't seem to want to go there. They seemed to think, well, we were getting them out through releases at the dam. And therefore, there wasn't a requirement to worry about the tunnel. But then Dr. Marvin Rosenau said it more eloquently than I could. He said, think about this. 90% of the watershed flows, upper watershed flows, are going out through the tunnel. 10% or less are going out through the dam. Now, if you do a simple calculation. Yeah, so Dr. Rosenau said there was, until we can prove otherwise, it's a straight linear mathematical equation that if 90% of the flows are going out through the tunnel and 10 or less are going out through the dam, the currents that that would create could could be 90% of the currents could be going north towards the tunnel and therefore attract because smolts in the spring of the year are attracted by currents that they hopefully believe will lead them to the ocean. And they will entrain themselves in these currents. And that is something to underline. That's their genetic code. Follow the currents. And if the strongest currents were towards the tunnel, then although we were measuring the success of sockeye going out through the dam at Mud Creek in the trap, which we ran every year, we didn't know what percentage of these smolts we were trapping. 
And like I say, that committee sat there for over 10 years and didn't want to ask that question or answer that question. And so it was it was frustrating. And don't forget, that was the, that was the original statement by uh, Global Resources was we can never successfully start a sockeye run because of the entrainment question. So here we are, you know, all these years later, 12 years later, and we still haven't, uh, after the committee was formed, not 12, I can't, yeah, 12 years later, after the committee was formed, and the primary question that Benjafield raised and that we'd asked to get an answer to still hadn't been answered. And it, it was apparent to me that DFO, MOE, the Water Rights Branch, the collective group were just not willing to address it. But finally, I would say last year we made such a stink that they are now going to do this study. So we call the segment License to Kill Entrainment Finally Rears Its Ugly Head because BC Hydro, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and the Ministry of the Environment have done everything in their power to draw attention away from entrainment and its disastrous impact on the salmon, or to delay any action on it. But the community inevitably called them out on it. One of uh, these stalling tactics was making the community committee go through a seven-stage process requiring many years to complete just to prove the obvious, that kokanee in the lake were actually sockeye. They could have funded a fish ladder and mitigated the entrainment of fish in the diversion tunnel much sooner. Today, 12 years after promising one, and being required to do so by its power station certification, BC Hydro has finally agreed to undertake a study to determine how many Alouette salmon are entrained. It probably should never have been necessary in the first place after environmental consultants found that fish were being killed in the tunnel and turbines. In part seven, the final one in this series, we will return to the Hundred Years' War on Alouette salmon by revisiting Jeff Clayton's conversation with Jack. So that concludes this episode of SeedPod. If you like what you hear, you can support SeedPod with a few dollars each episode by joining our Patreons. Find us at patreon.com forward slash SeedPod, spelled C-E-E-D-P-O-D. SeedPod is published by the Seed Center Society, a registered charity providing community education on environment and development. Our mission is to connect people to community and share information on sustainability so that all living beings can thrive. We operate the Seed Centre Neighbourhood House, where we offer free weekly programs for seniors, for artists, and for the general public, as well as community gardens. Our featured program for this episode is the Seed Centre Art Group. Every Tuesday from 1 to 3 p.m., artists of all abilities join us to paint or sketch and enjoy the companionship of others as they pursue their artistic ambitions. All are welcome. Bring your art supplies. We provide the tables, chairs, and drop cloths. You can find out more about the Seed Center Neighborhood House on our website, which you'll find at www.seedcenter.com.
Our building was built by the Japanese Canadian pioneers, who comprised about one third of the population of Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows in the 1920s, 30s, and into the early 1940s. We maintain it as a federally registered heritage building in their honor. It is one of the few physical symbols of those early pioneers. This episode of Seed Pod was co hosted and edited by me, Christian Cowley. My co host Jack Emberly interviewed our guest Jeff Clayton over many weeks in preparation for this series, The Hundred Year War on Salmon. Look for part seven, the final episode in the series, coming to you soon. You may also be interested in Jack Emberly's recent documentary video entitled The Fairy Creek Blockade as I See It. You will find it on YouTube. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember to connect with your community. Connected community is a resilient one. So long.